Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Alex Pritchett, uh, who is the founder of Upswing.io, which is a education startup. Uh, I guess, would you describe it as a startup? I'm not totally sure that's even the right word for it, Alex. So what, Alex, why don't you tell us about what it is? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Drew. Thanks, Drew. Um, yeah, so Upswing is, it, it is kind of in that interesting place where we still, I think, have that startup culture, but we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That's yeah, awesome. Thanks. thanks. Yeah, on March 18th. So it was fun. We did a whole team celebration, um, you know, all got together through, you know, through Zoom and, and had a great time. We did some trivia, did some, there were some prizes and, and everyone had a wonderful time there. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah. I think 10 years definitely puts you out of the startup range. That's like standard business now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I think now we're just a yeah, normal, normal business now. Um, we still call ourselves a startup, but it's it's more of the it's more of kind of like your essence rather than anything else, really. Um but no upswing. So upswing was started by myself and our CEO, Melvin Hines, 10 years ago. And we started with the mission to um, help, um, you know, make higher education more equitable. Mm-hmm. And our vision was always to do that by, um, you know, helping students um, gain access to uh, free student services, no matter what college they went to, no matter where they live, no matter their income level, um, their demographics. Um, we just saw that um, there was such an opportunity to say, hey, um, you know, there's no reason why a student at a school like, you know, Durham Tech shouldn't have access to the same types of resources that a student at a, a college like Duke University should have. And so we started the company uh, here in Durham, North Carolina, where I currently live. And um, now we work with uh, over, um, you know, over probably 65 institutions, uh, more than 500,000 students are using our our services and um, you know, students have never had to pay for, for any of it. It's, it's been really cool. We've been able to really help um, you know, students that are in rural, low-income, underserved areas to um, really help them make it to and through college. That, that's awesome. What like how did you how did you get the inkling to start this? Like how did you identify that uh, you know certain students didn't have these sorts of resources and then make a business out of it? Yeah, so it, it was it was definitely a journey, you know. So um, prior to even starting Upswing, um, I I actually was working in the local uh, local community in Carborough, North Carolina. And at the time, I had started up a volunteer organization for uh, Latino middle school-aged boys. And uh, this was a program I had started up when I was in college. And the focus there was to help these students, um, you know, just learn about the college experience. And I was doing that by connecting them in with, you know, students at the college level, uh, people they could look up to, you know, not a not an adult, but kind of like that cooler, almost like older sibling type of um, approach where you know, someone that was five, six, seven years older than them, they, but they could still relate to and, and learn a lot from. 
Um, and I, I ran that program for several years and then handed that off to the service learning department at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and then from there, I, I just got more and more involved in, in the community. I actually started up a uh, microfinance organization in Chapel Hill. Uh, we turned that into a, a 501c3. It's still in operation today. It's expanded into Durham. Um, and I just really saw, I think, firsthand how, um, you know, really teaching and, and, and helping people get access to resources and, um, you know, really support had on, on their outcomes, too. We were doing a lot of uh, community building and um, I actually ran the um, like small business uh, training program for them where we talked a lot about, you know, just really um, kind of like, you know, financials within small businesses and marketing and how to get, um, you know, how to get customers. And we helped, we helped people that were at risk of homelessness get out of that position. So I did that and then um, I moved to Durham and um, really got connected in with Melvin at the time, who was a professor at NC Central. And he saw there firsthand how a lot of the students would come to him and just say, hey, you know, I'm really looking for advice. I'm really looking for support. And he and I, you know, just started talking one day and said, hey, you know, why don't we, why don't we invest more into this? Why don't we, you know, we both had jobs at the time, full-time jobs. Why don't we quit our jobs and figure out how can we solve this problem? And and that's exactly what we did. That's really awesome. It really is. And I will tell you, it's an impressive story for someone so young, you know, to actually have that forethought of what's possible and to then make it happen. And I'm glad you had someone to help you along in your business. So, so I want to go back a little bit and talk a little bit about your original part of your micro lending. Why did you stop that business? And, and, and what were the results that you saw from that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, first of all, the thing you mentioned about being young, I think, I think it ends up being this kind of perfect time in your life where you're just naive enough to think that you know you can go change the world, and you're just kind of crazy enough to think like, hey, you know, I don't really have any real commitments, right? I had I started up when I was 24 years old, didn't have kids, didn't have a spouse, didn't have a mortgage, didn't even have um, you know car payment at the time, so. You know, there were a lot of things that, you know, the older you get, the harder it is to start things up because you get you get used to making a salary at a job. You get used to the comfort of saying, OK, I have, you know, I have what I have now. I have these responsibilities. So the youth ends up just kind of being this thing that, you know, I think for a lot of people that start companies, um, there's that na naivete and then also just the lack of real, um, you know, real true responsibilities that you have. So it, it ended up working out for me at the time. Um, in terms of the micro lending pieces is really, um, I learned a ton through the through starting that up. So I started that up with um, with six other people um, in, in Chapel Hill. And, um, and it was it was really eye opening. You know, we got to work firsthand with uh, people in the community. So you know, my, my kind of journey was early on, I worked, I did a lot of that direct work with people. I was one of the, you know, mentors at the, um, Los Caballeros was the name of the mentoring program we did for Latino youth. And then um, Community Empowerment Fund is the name of the um, micro lending organization. Um, and I worked directly with people that were at risk of homelessness. We would, 
Um, you know, we would go around and again, they would come to different workshops. I would also meet with them. You know, we'd meet at coffee shops. We'd meet on campus. Um, a lot of them lived, you know, near downtown Chapel Hill. So um, a lot of it was helping them with things like resume writing and applying for jobs and, um, you know, myriad of, of situations there. Um, and at least for me, it was um, something where the program had grown so much. It had kind of you know, it had kind of like outgrown me, right? Like I kind of felt like at the time we had really good leadership in place. Um, there were there were two folks at the time that um, I started with that really, really kind of took over. Uh, Maggie West was the really the head of the operation um, from the beginning and she led things. Um, funny enough, kind of on a, on a tangent, my wife, my current wife was um, one of the people that I started the program with. So that's how we really developed um we really kind of like strengthened our friendship um, become great friends through that um and she was one of the founding members of the community empowerment fund as well which is really cool because we have that kind of like you know linkage even before we were dating or um ever in a relationship so um you know for me i think at the time it was something where you know i felt like it was in good hands we'd already grown to durham um, and for me, I was at the time I got introduced to um, this idea of um, software development and uh, figuring out how can we take an idea and scale it. And so I got really interested in this concept of, you know, I had done these different things that worked really well within local communities. And um, I was really interested in the idea of, you know, kind of through technology, how can you take an idea that is proven to impact things on a small scale and and make it a make it on the big scale so that was kind of where some of my like interests had shifted um so i took kind of a let's say like a brief detour in like my social impact work i worked for a software company for about three years um and then that was the job that i quit to start up soon three years later so, so so I have, I have a series of questions so and, and some of them may seem very rudimentary but please bear with me what is an entrepreneur? Just plain speak. Yeah. So I think for me, an entrepreneur is someone who takes some sort of financial and personal risk of, of starting and building something new. Um, I think typically when people think of entrepreneurs, they think of, um, you know, someone who's starting a business, but it could also be a nonprofit, be a volunteer organization. It could be a movement. Um, it could be you know, content like this podcast, I would say that, you know, though both of you are entrepreneurs, you know, starting up this podcast. So I think for me, it's, um, you know, it's someone who's taking that risk to create something um, and building something new. So as you can imagine, for many young people, uh, black and brown people, women, the idea of stepping out into that risk uh, platform, or I should say maybe plank, <laughs> platform but but stepping out into that space is uh frightening uh challenging um sometimes you're faced with racism and and bias you know so for young people out there that's considering starting a business and you have started three or four successfully and done really well at them what advice would you give young people who or anyone really who's thinking of starting a business what would be your pros and cons I think 
So the first question I would ask them is, is this something that you care about so much that you're willing to do it for the next 10 years? And I think, I think a lot of, a lot of businesses that don't end up being successful, a lot of times that comes down to are the founders, are the leaders willing to, do they care enough about the mission? Do they care enough about what they're doing to fight through the really hard times? Because there are going to be a lot of really hard times ahead of you. And oftentimes with people that are considering, you know, starting a business or starting something new, you, you can see it pretty early. Is there that conviction level there? Are they willing to do the things that it takes to, to start something up? Um, and I would also say that I think a lot of people think about starting a business as you have to do all this stuff to create this business and then you have to run with the business. Whereas lots of times there are small things that you can do to really test out is the business itself viable, right? There's, there's some early traction that you can get while working, working for another organization or, you know, there's things that you can do to really show that the need is there for whatever you're trying to build, right? Whether it's a, a business or a nonprofit or podcast or a movement, right? Like um, I would ask them, like, are you willing to do this for a long time? And is this something that you could test on a small level and see, is this something that can be successful before you, before you quit your job, before you go all in on it? Um, even with upswing, you know, we, um, the first probably six months we were both, you know, they call it moonlighting where you're working on a side project while you're, you know, while you're doing another job that pays the bills. Right. So, um, for us, that point of validation or the thing that really got us to make the jump was we, we had approached the superintendent's office at, um, the Durham public school system and, again, young and naive. We didn't have an appointment, didn't even know the superintendent. We knocked on the door and said, we'd love to speak to the superintendent. <laughs> you know, the front desk person, I think was like so shocked that we just were there. She was like, okay, let me check his calendar. She's like, he'll be, you know, he's available in 20 minutes. So met wow. with him, shared our idea. And he was like, you know, I don't often do this, but I have $600 in extra budget that I uh, really want to put towards helping um, some of our um, eighth grade students do better on the end of year, you know, placement exams. Um, he was like, if I, if I gave you guys that, could you launch a program? And we did, we launched with Southern high school, which is one of, at least at the time was one of the lowest performing high schools in the County. Um, and we worked with them to develop, um, a tutoring program throughout the day that students could come to. So, um, it was during lunch if they wanted to, um, you know, meet and, and work on, get help in math or um, science or, or reading, writing, they could do that. And that was our initial launch. So, you know, it's um, a, a lot of it is getting out there and, and talking to people and, and validating the business idea at a small level before you say, I'm going to, you know, dive all in on just an idea. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the other thing I wanted to mention too, Dr. Newton, because I know you mentioned how um, you know, starting a company can be even more intimidating for people of color and for and for females. And I think that's totally right. I think the one of the most important things that we can all do is to really showcase and lift up 
those people that are out there currently doing it right as you know as a white man it's easy for me to look up and see bill gates and steve jobs and you know all these white male um founders and leaders who i i can envision myself as right um we need to have, we need to make sure that we're doing more of that for for people of color for women to showcase the women that are really successful the black people the latinos that are you know out there doing doing amazing things because there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there now that are doing that and um you know i think it's through it's through podcasts it's through um obviously through traditional media um it's through you know youtube i love your youtube channel um but it's you know really kind of like helping escalate those voices more that's going to only have this like downstream effect of you know showing younger girls younger people of color like hey there's there's folks like me that are out there doing this kind of stuff they're leading companies they're starting new things up and um but it's you know it's it's all the point where it is definitely really intimidating so um and drew i'm sure you have a gazillion questions too but um i, I want to start about one thing and say you know and i don't know if we talked about this when we did the diversity chat but of color is an insult to black and brown people because all of us are a color white is a color you know yellow red all of us are of a color and so when it's used to frame black and brown people, it marginalizes them further. So I would just advocate for not using of color, but being very specific. You're talking about black and brown people, talk about that, LGBT, LGBTQ people or women or whatever it is, but to frame it in that way, as opposed to uh, our use of language does more to hurt us than it does to help us. So, you know, it's just one of those things. But, but my second question in that space is about funding. So in that same vein, as I asked you about starting, like, so you have a brilliant idea, you're committed to it. You, you, you've got a team together and you really want to move forward, but you have $2. You don't have money to start it. What were some of the struggles that you had financially and how did you overcome those? Yeah. So, so first of all, your, your point about the using the people of color as a catch-all is, is totally well-received and I a hundred percent under, understand that. And I appreciate you saying that too, because you're right. That's, you know, people of color aren't a monolith. Everyone's different, right? Each, each ethnicity is different. Each, each, even like within some of the broader ethnicities like Latino, that's so, you know, that's so far encompassing. And um, so I appreciate you saying that because I think that's, that's a great learning moment and that's a great thing to call out. So thank you for that. Um, in terms of the, in terms of the, the dollars um i think it's i think one of the most challenging things about entrepreneurship is and one of the most frustrating things is that most companies are started by people that come from money and the reason why that is is because of exactly what you mentioned right you have um you know you have this big divide between people that come from money and people that don't and it's much much easier to take some of those, you know, calculated risks if you have that safety net. Uh, we never had that, myself or Melvin. Um, and it was tough. The first, um, you know, the first 12 months, we neither one of us made a salary. Um, we were we were basically having to live off of um, any savings that we had from our previous jobs. Um, and and it was really tough because you know you, you get really 
used to um, eating a lot of ramen noodles in those early days. Um, <laughs> you know, you um, you do some interesting things just to just to save money. Um, one thing that we did, for example, was um, we got we got accepted into this. It was called an accelerator out in Dallas, and it was based in this um, it was based in this building that used to be a church. Everyone called it the tech church because it was now all these you know, software companies that were out of there, they're part of this accelerator. And when we moved to Dallas, we didn't, we didn't have a place to stay. So the first like three or four nights in Dallas, Melvin and I just slept underneath our desk at this church. <laughs> and we were so embarrassed that we had to do this, that uh, we were convinced that like, we couldn't, we couldn't let anyone else know that we were doing this. So every single day we were, we had to be the first ones up working. And every single night we were the last ones working. And it was tough because you had, you know, entrepreneurs are crazy. Some people are like, you know, these like early morning workers, other people will like be coding late into the night. And so the first people would get there at like 7 a.m. And we knew that we had to be up, we had to be showered, we had to be like ready to go. And the last people would be there coding until like 2, like 2 a.m. So we were there working like until 2 a.m. And then finally, you know, they'd leave and then we'd go to sleep underneath our desks and wake up a couple hours later. Um, so you, you like get to build up this like resiliency of, um, it's almost like a like a badge of honor to figure out what are all the ways that you can like save money and reduce costs. And, and what's funny is like, once we did finally get, um, once we finally did get a place to stay in Dallas, it was a, it was a one bedroom apartment that Melvin and I shared. And so what we would do is we would trade off weeks of who got to sleep in the bed and who had to sleep on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> and every week every, we would trade off every Friday. And so, that Friday was either like the best day of your week because you were going to get to sleep in the better or the worst day. <laughs> oh, the worst day. The next week. <laughs> that's wonderful. But that's a true commitment to what you were trying to do. And I think that's a beautiful story. And I think it should be told old, over and over and over again. You know, the uh, Drew and I talk about this a lot. So do you remember the woman who started Theranos, um, Elizabeth Holmes, mm -hmm. and the whole concept of Silicon Valley of faking it till you make it? There's a lot of people who put on that hat and say, okay, I'm going to stay in the vein until I make it. But the commitment that you just described, that's really, I mean, like you are so deep in the vein, you, there's no way for you to go. You, know? <laughs> you couldn't do anything but be successful. But that's a, a very, very important point for people to know is that, you know, some people's dreams come true overnight. I don't know any of those people, but some people's dreams do come true overnight. But if you think of those people who have laid the technology foundation, all of them, met with challenges that sometimes were almost, I'm not going to do it anymore, you know? Um, so I, I, I want to take my hat off to you and Melvin, even though I don't know Melvin to say, you know, I am so proud of you and proud of your commitment to seeing this through. That's, that's truly amazing. So mm -hmm. Drew, what, what do you think about this? Yeah. So not only, so I, I love sleeping under the desk story. That is, uh, that needs to go in a book. So whenever you write your book, be sure to include that. Uh, the other really cool thing that I like about your, uh, like your, not just your story, but your, sort of your journey to get here is just your ability to like find, uh, find a hole in society that's not being like correctly filled, and then doing all of that work to fill it in. Because I think, and belonging comes up a lot on our podcast as well. And like personally, that's not something I really thought about. Like, have do people feel like they belong in a certain spot, whether it's you know school or an organization? 
uh, or somewhere else. So it's just really cool uh, that you were able to sort of see that and be like, oh yeah, like these people feel like they don't belong. They need help. Like, how can we do it? And, you know, we're going to stay up till 3 a.m. so that we can sleep under our desks in this, you know, tech space to do it. It is real commitment. So like, just like, thank you for that. Like, I think on behalf of everybody. Um, one of the big things that I'm curious about, you know, uh, with your business being around for 10 years, uh, another thing that we talk a lot about on here about is work and how it's changing. And sort of what are the biggest things that you've seen change specifically around working in technology and education over the last decade? And where do you think, what are the next changes you think that we'll see? Yeah, so it's it's definitely changed a lot. Um you know, when we first started upswing in in 2013, there was, you know, there wasn't much in terms of, you know, the concept of, of work from home. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although, although it's we kind of We love it now, though. <laughs> yes, we well, love the, it now. Well, the funny thing is, though, that when we first started upswing, so we went through this accelerator up in Dallas, and then we moved to Austin. And... It was myself and Melvin, and then when we were in the accelerator, we uh, we kind of like merged with another company was there that was there, and they were doing like test prep software. Um, they had, you know, they had this like amazing um, technologist Chris Webb on their team, and he joined and he became their he became our CTO, and so it was, uh, myself, him, Melvin, and then Chris had a, a co-founder named Morgan, and the four of us all moved to a house in Austin. And, you know, we were like working from the living room. We had like all these desks set up in this house and our first, like probably two or three employees that we hired, we didn't have an office. So they just came in, they worked in the living room. So technically it was like work, work from home before work from home was really a thing because we were all literally working from a home. Um, so we actually did have like work from home back then, but it was, you know, much different than it is today with, you know, Zoom being just like so ubiquitous and, you know, Google Meet and all those other tools that they have. Um, I think it's, I think it's kind of, um, it kind of mirrors though, like what we saw happen in education where um, there's kind of like this, you know, like concept in, in entrepreneurship where you want to be, um, you want to be like an antidote, not a vitamin, because when you're an antidote, um, you become this like integral thing that people need. When you're a vitamin, it's really easy to say, I'm no longer, I no longer really want to take these vitamins anymore. So I can, hmm. I can stop getting them. Right. And I think that's what this like idea of kind of a remote culture of remote working or living or studying or whatever you want to call it happened in 2020, where, you know, all these remote tools went from being this, you know, like vitamin to being like an antidote where everyone needed it, right? Everyone needed Zoom overnight. Everyone needed, um, you know, all these other productivity tools overnight because there was no more going into the office for for a lot of people, especially in the tech space. And the same thing happened with colleges where previously, like, you know, upstream had gained quite a bit of traction. We were doing well, but our biggest challenge was convincing schools that, hey, this idea of like really investing in and, um, in, in having, you know, support services was critical for all of your students, right? And I think prior to 2020, a lot of them viewed it as, you know, about 20% of our students are taking, you know, are doing online classes. And so it's, you know, it's okay if we have these services, um, 
but we don't really need to like invest all in on it. And then 2020 hit and all of a sudden every single school change, you know, it changed, right? Where they were coming to us saying, we have to have something like this. Like there's no way for our students to meet with their advisors or their tutors. Like, you know, there's no way for us to notify students about, you know, when their courses are, how it's changing. Um, because we, you know, we have this like kind of like video conferencing platform through Upswing where students can meet with folks on campus, but we also have this SMS, um, we call it a virtual assistant that we created that schools can, um, you know, send out messaging, two-way messaging back and forth to students through. And all of them needed that where, you know, students were, the phone lines were fully booked, like no one knew what was going on. You have all these like instructors and professors that are, have never taught online before and they're being thrown into the mix of saying, okay, you're now going to teach online. And it was, it was really tough and it changed a lot. Um, and I think, you know, kind of like coming out of that now, everyone's like perspectives have changed, you know, with obviously with the workforce, like you see so many more companies out now that are either full remote or hybrid. And then colleges too are like, you know, there's no way we can ever go back to not offering a world-class online experience because those that don't are those that are not going to last long-term. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. And a lot of universities and a lot of organizations are still struggling with work and learning remotely. Um, I, I think I told you this, my, my dissertation is on fully online uh, courses and completion rates. Um, and I did, at the time I was working at the law school at Duke and then um, doing my, uh, my capstone at uh, the, uh, the provost's office. And we were negotiating the contract with Coursera and it was really amazing. Duke and all of the major universities were not committed to fully online education for their students. They were committed to some online courses, some remote learning, but the foundation of education is built on seats and chairs, right? Face-to-face -face instruction. Um, the question is, and I still have this question even all these years later, uh, about black and brown people and completion rates because my study showed I did it with Harvard, I did it with uh, Stanford. Black and brown people do not complete fully online courses without accessories. And what I mean by that is access to their faculty, access to administrators, access to funding, all the things that help keep them in school. And uh, I think that a program like yours is remarkable because at least it's an attempt at that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was telling somebody this this morning, you know, there is a, a slight dis, discord between what white people think is good for black people and what black people think is good for black people. And a lot of times, and I, I, I don't speak for brown people because I, I, although I have a whole bunch of Hispanics in my family, <laughs> I have no point of reference to, to speak from, but I will say that, you know, when you find a program that generally has the interest of students who are at risk, you have a better chance of having better completion rates. And we all know colleges and universities and all these people need good completion rates. So this leads me to my other question. How has technology allowed your company to move forward? And where do you see technology in the next iteration of the work that you're doing? So I, I first want to um, talk a little bit through the first thing you mentioned, which is just how how they're differing success rates for students when it comes to online education. 
um, and I, I can't speak directly for or to black or brown communities about this, but I can share with you what a lot of our schools saw um, when students in general were, um, you know, were forced to go full remote. Um, I think the a couple of challenges that a lot of schools initially had was um, what they were finding was that a lot of their students, especially those that were lower income, were so dependent on the on-site resources. And one of the biggest resources that a lot of you know students used was the computer labs there. Right. I think in general, like all of us in the workforce, it's almost like it's all you almost think like, oh, everyone just has a computer, right? Everyone just has a laptop at home. Everyone just has a good internet connection at home. And that wasn't the case for a lot of the communities that we work with, right? We Not work with all. rural communities, all low-income communities. They were coming to campus and using the computer lab to access the internet. And as soon as as soon as the quarantine happened, that wasn't even a resource anymore for them, right? They couldn't just go to the library. They couldn't just go to campus. Um, so the first thing that colleges had to do was they had to figure out how can we get students um, resources, right? How, yeah, how can we get them back online? And so um, the first, you know, one of the things that they started doing was saying, okay, how can we maybe like reallocate our funds to either help students get computers? Um, so a couple of our schools would. For example, like um, allow students to get access to um, like Chromebooks, Google Chromebooks. Um, others had to find a way in the peak of 2020 to open up their computer lab to say, okay, if you need to use the computer lab, there's still a way for you to do that. We're going to, you know, do that safely. Um, but they had to kind of shift up gears and say, this is a necessity for these students to be successful. Um, so a lot of things like that happened really early on that, you know, they didn't really get talked about in mainstream media, right? Because they didn't affect, didn't affect, um, you know, the kind of working force that affected these people that were in low income areas. And, um, you know, sadly, that stuff doesn't always get as much, as much coverage, right? As like talking about, you know, you know, Zoom versus Google Meet versus, you know, whatever else people use. Um, so that was one big thing is, and there were all kinds of things like that. We had one school that um, had to totally like divert their funds away from, um, you know, some some services on campus, all towards travel. They were an HBCU in South Carolina and they said the biggest initial challenge they faced um, was how do we get students home, right? Um, HBCU is residential college. So students are from all over the country a lot of students didn't, you know, didn't have $1,000 to spend on a plane ticket to go back to, you know, the West Coast or to Florida or, or anywhere, right? Like they had to, so the school had to figure out how can we help them get home when they didn't have the, the money and the, and the financial resources to do so. So there were all kinds of challenges like this that were just, they're so different, right? No one had faced them before, but they like, I think it was magnified in terms of their impact on, um, you know, some of these marginalized communities. Yeah. I think that uh, one of the things that that comes to mind about you know these things and how we how we move them forward is to take time to think through right. So uh, my mother used to say this to me all the time: before you build a ship for somebody, ask them what kind of ship do they want. And you know, at the time, I thought that was a pretty strange thing for somebody to say to me. 
but as I've gotten older, I understand, you know, if you don't get people involved, that the change is going to affect your change is almost always going to fail because if you haven't asked these people how these things will impact or improve their lives, you know, I, I still can't can't help saying I am just so proud of the work that you have done. I am so proud of your effort and what you're trying to do. So what's next for Alex Pritchett? Where are you going now? What's next is still this, you know, like um, I, so I have this like, I have this like good analogy that I thought of recently that I, I really keep thinking about. Um, so I met with, I met with the founder here in Durham um, on Friday and he was like, just like, just starting up his company. He's also doing something at tech space. So he'd reached out and just said, Hey, you know, we'd love to chat. We'd love to hear about, you know, how do you approach, um, you know, ed tech funding and, and growing the company and, um, so I was thinking a lot about just like in general, how people think about companies and, um, actually one thing you said earlier, Dr. Newton kind of reminded me of this as well, where, um, you mentioned like, you know, how oftentimes people, people tend to like associate startups with these like overnight successes. And one of my favorite interviews ever it actually, it's a, a line from the interview was um, someone was interviewing Dustin, Dustin Moskovitz, who was one of the co-founders of Facebook. Okay. And the interviewee said something like, or the interviewer said something like, um, you know, what is it like knowing that you were part of an overnight success at Facebook? <laughs> Don't you love that? Yeah, you love that, right? And he <laughs> he says, well, if you mean by overnight success, you mean seven years of coding every night until 4 a.m., having no relationships, um, living in a one-bedroom apartment, and um, basically not being able to like travel to go on vacations. Um, then by overnight success, it was you know really really challenging and stressful, honestly. <laughs> um, so he like he totally kind of like called him out, and it was you know I think it was it was good because like, you know, even, even for myself and probably for y'all, like, you know, we think about those overnight successes, like, you know, like Facebook or like, um, you know, others, TikTok that came on recently has just been huge. Um, and a lot of the community, a lot of the media uses this like analogy of like a rocket ship, right? And they say, you know, okay, you're going to get on this startup rocket ship to the moon. You hear it a lot. Um, and, my thought is that most successful businesses, the wrong analogy is the rocket ship and the right analogy is the cockroach. Huh. And yep. those companies that are successful and entrepreneurs that are successful are much more like cockroaches than they are like, you know, some pilot of a rocket where your main objective as someone who's running a business is to make it really hard to kill your business, right? Like you want to be really resilient. You want to be able to, you know, outlive the um, the atomic bomb that is the pandemic. You want to be able to outlive, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank crashing. You want to be able to outlive, you know, a big competitor coming into your market and trying to crush you. So I told him that, and I was like, you know, that that should be your approach, right? Like, become the cockroach, and like you'll you'll last a long time. It won't be as like glamorous, maybe as like. You know some of those rare instances where where companies are more of that rocket, but that's oftentimes the pathway to success. So I have to tell you a cockroach story that I think you'll find funny. Um, so my husband and I, my husband is a member of a fraternity, so they have fraternity conventions all over the place. So 
he decided one bright day we're gonna have we're gonna go he and i are gonna go to myrtle beach and we are going to spend a week at the landmark hotel have you ever been to the landmark hotel i would, I advise, against it. I would advise against it so we're, we're our room is right on the water right so you know you open the door and it's so loud it sounds like a train is running through your your room but somehow or another a cockroach flew into our room landed on the wall adjacent to the tv right so we're we're looking at the tv and the cockroach is just moving all over the wall so my husband gets the brave idea okay i'm gonna just kill it so he gets one of his shoes and he goes and he whacks it it falls to the ground on its back legs straight up in the air not moving so like okay we killed it so we go back to watching tv listening to the beautiful water rush in about 10 minutes later the cockroach is crawling on the tv screen oh is this a different cockroach? Is this the same? It's the exact same cockroach because one of his legs is not working quite so <laughs> So he hits him again on the TV. He falls down again. And this time he takes him and throws him out onto the deck, hopefully trying to land over the deck. Well, as you can imagine, your cockroach, Alex. He comes back into the room and now <laughs> in the front of the room. Oh my God, you oh cannot kill gosh. a cockroach. That's the story, Alex. You cannot kill a cockroach. That's what you want to be. You you want to be really hard to kill. <laughs> exactly. And they, they, have, they have big cockroaches down in South Carolina, too. They have those big, they call them palmettos that are, it's not your average size cockroach either. <laughs> I grew up in Walterboro, South Carolina, 27 miles from Charleston. Trust me, I know. No, I, when I would come to people's house, the people would say, can you leave your luggage outside for a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> well, but anyway, you know, this has been wonderful, Alex. We have a gazillion more questions, but it's been wonderful. Um, you know, you owe me some subscribers, you know, have your people listen to our podcast, like us, you know, help us, you know, get our podcast off the ground. We are cockroaches too, but we, one of us is sick and the other one of us is busy. <laughs> <laughs> so our commitment to the podcast it, it wanes on days there are some days we're all in and there are some days it's like oh my god can we get out of the bed again <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and that's that's what makes all the entrepreneurs you know it's it's waking up every day and doing it even even if it's tough even if you're sick even if you're busy so um i also you know y'all obviously gave me a ton of um shout outs here but also want to shout out both of you because the work that you're doing here is, is so great and um i'm just really you know consider myself privileged and honored to be part of this so thank you so much for having me on today as well Absolutely. awesome yeah thank, thank you both so much I, th I think this was a, a great conversation and i'll go ahead and i think wrap up because we're at time uh but thank you so much uh alex for coming in and i i probably speak for both of us saying we'd love to have you on again at some point uh the conversation flies by so quickly like i look at the clock and i'm like we've already been talking for 30 minutes it seems like it's uh it just started uh so thank you so much for coming on and uh thank you to all of our listeners uh please uh, like and subscribe to the podcast recommend your friends and we will talk to you all next week thank you